Good morning. Good morning. This is the Lois J. Wetzel Show, and I'm your host and executive producer, Lois Wetzel, coming to you live today, January the 3rd, 2014, from Houston, Texas. And after about a four-month hiatus, I am starting up my radio show again, and I'm very delighted to have with me today returning guest, Michael R. Hathaway, who is an author and a very highly respected hypnotherapist who specializes in uh, past life regressions, and he's written many books, um, quite a few of them in the Everything series and uh, one in the Idiot's Guide series and... um, He's talking today about his most recent book called Mystery in the Dream House. And I am really delighted to speak with you today, Michael. Thanks, Lois. It's great to be on with you. Thank you. So um, what? tell us what prompted you to write this book. Well, I got started in the book uh, actually well over 20 years ago when uh, I was sort of playing with friends. I had a friend that I knew had a gift of knowing. She sort of lived in the trance, you could tell, just by watching her eyes. And one night she was telling us about uh, a dream that she'd had a good part of her life. Now, she was English, and had moved to this country several years before. And the dream consisted of a little shot snippet all the time of this old stone house with a little girl about four years old or so outside of the house. And the scene changed. It would change from uh, the ocean sometimes, and sometimes it would be away from the ocean, but still the house was, uh, that was it. That was her dream. And she kept having this dream over and over again, and she was just kind of wondering what the dream meant. And I jokingly said, well, I'll hypnotize you and put you inside of your dream. So uh, I did, and that opened up a mystery. That fascination of that first session led to many different sessions, and out of it a whole story emerged. Hmm. And on the back of the book, which you so graciously sent me a copy of, it, it says that it spanned about a 200-year period. Uh, so, yeah, what we go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. It's your story. Well, no, but it's your question. So I, I have a habit of sometimes speaking too fast, and I apologize. Uh, what we found, and uh, I was curious as to uh, how this lady had the ability she had, and I've always had a belief that cause and effect in our own lives create sometimes how we image in our mind. So I regressed her back in her life to an early point where I knew that she'd had an illness. I believe she had scarlet fever as a fairly young age. But in the process of doing that, she began to talk about this little uh, friend that came to visit her when she was about uh, six months old. She talked about this little girl that came in with beautiful golden hair and kind of, where the first time she visited her, smiled at her and just squeezed her arms. And uh, anyways, this friend kept showing up to play with her. And she played with her throughout her early childhood. Now, 
when we brought the the my friend out of her trance, she had no knowledge of this friend that she'd been talking about. Well, she talked to her mother in England, and her mother said, oh, you used to talk about her all the time. So that was just, a, again, it's a curiosity of mine that led to the questions that, that kept going. So what we did was we began to investigate the little friend and where she played with the friend and all the different aspects of the friend. And uh, at the same time, as we kind of, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, uh, kind of like hypnosis, dowsing or what, but I counted uh, my friend back in a trance through time to get to a point of where, in her mind's eye, this little girl may have lived, and suspecting the fact that, her best friend as a kid was a ghost. So we came up with a time period in the 1815s in France during the uh, French uh, Napoleonic Wars and all the things that were taking place. And she began to describe the little girl's journey and how she was smuggled out of uh, France to England and the plot that, that was uh, conspired to actually take over control of the, the fortune that her mother had. So it was just a whole, I mean, it sounds all wonderful and made up, you know, but it was it was just fascinating each time to watch it unfold. You know, uh, when you say it sounds made up, the thing is that this woman probably did not know enough to make it up, did she? When she is well, a specialist in... <laughs> that was, that thing that you're broken up. Your voice keeps coming and going a little bit, Lois. But I think what you meant was, uh, did she know all the facts of what she was presenting? And the answer is, as far as we knew, she did not. And there were other events that took place in in this research that really proved that uh, there was something else going on besides what she knew was playing out in it. Uh-huh. I think the, the most... Go ahead. I was I just agreeing I'm, with you. Oh, thanks. Well, the, the, the most exciting, uh, one of the most dramatic was the point where this little girl eventually grew to be bigger than... Uh, I mean, my friend grew to be bigger than the little girl. The girl never changed, but my friend, of course, grew. And that was a point where they needed to... A little spirit girl said, I'm going away, you need to forget about me. And there was a night where my friend woke up singing a song in French. She doesn't speak French. <laughs> and mm. that was a little spooky for her. Yeah, and you know, when I hear you say that it seems made up, it, it also brings up for me, like when I see past lives, and I think, it, you know, they ask a question about the same exact subject, am I just making up a story? And then there are other things in that past life regression that they'll tell me later uh, in the feedback portion. They'll say, well, you know, um, you couldn't possibly have known this, but such and such and so and so in that reading uh, dovetails perfectly with exactly what happened to me when I met that person in this lifetime. 
the same way that I met them in that other lifetime. So those kinds of things are confirmation, like did that person know the history? Can they speak that language? Are they picking up on things that they couldn't possibly otherwise know? And for me, that's confirmation. And I know there's a lot of controversy around proof about, I mean, in in our culture anyway, people who want proof, concrete proof that past lives really exist. And, you know, one of the proofs for me is when you see something or in either an regression or a reading that you couldn't otherwise have known. That's confirmation. Right. Oh, I agree. And in, in my practice with clients, to tell you the truth, you know, when you use your intuition as, as best you can, I just never know quite what I'm going to say next. And when the client says, it's funny you should say that, then I'm going, yeah, that's just proof that there's something feeding information back that, that's uh, confirming that we're on the right path. Because they would have been thinking about it or feeling about it. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, that brings to mind um, that famous quote by the physicist Nassim Haramein, where he says, looking for the mind inside the brain is like looking for the announcer inside the radio. We're getting information from somewhere else. And That's the brain is a receiver. I, I, and the, you, I agree so much with you. I, I, because my, my mind is so far off the scale from everybody else, I just felt that uh, everybody has their own frequency. So the way you receive information, the way somebody else does, then uh, that it's, it may be the same thing, but coming in a different way. Hmm. You know, you, like you might get a feeling or a picture, and I might just get a knowing. Somebody else might get a smell or a taste. In other words, it's the way it replays out in the mind's eye. That's the difference. Yeah, some of us are more clairvoyant. We, we see images in our head. Some of us are clairaudient. We hear a feeling. We're clairsentient. Some people have all those things, but we don't necessarily receive information the same way. But, you know, we get, and, and sometimes it's smell too, touches, but people don't um, always allow themselves to receive that. They brush it off because of childhood conditioning. They go, oh, I didn't really hear that or see that or feel that. Yeah, and it comes back to, well, where does imagination come from? You know, it's like uh, like that information that comes to you. Am I imagining it? Am I receiving it? And I just say, well, just receive it. Just collect. It's like collecting clues. And this mm-hmm. is basically what we did in the book was play mind detective. And uh, the way I wrote it was I w- was looking to create something on, along the line of what you'd call a, a real-life uh, book. In other words, it's all like all these uh, television shows that are on now, you know, that are like life, real-life happening shows. Even though it takes a long time to film them, they want you to be drawn into it so you're a part of it as it takes place. So the goal was uh-huh. to draw the reader into the process of what I was going through, collecting the information as we, you know, work towards the end of the book. And of course, 
the monkey wrenches that got thrown into the story, and Lois, you were probably the biggest monkey wrench that changed the whole focus of what was going to no, that was Well, I was thinking for a while, this is, I just want a nice, simple ending here. And it, uh, the little spirit had its own mind and was going in the way it was going, and it was amazing uh, for, for your listeners. Lois was, uh, through a mutual friend, uh, had recommended that Lois do an Akashic reading of uh, the subject, and she did and came out with a whole different, with several different lifetimes with things happening between the subjects in the book. The, the little, the woman, that Ellen, who's the subject of the book, and the little ghost girl in their relationship over time. And so as it turned out, I mean, what I thought was going to be just a nice simple ending uh, turned into a whole different viewpoint. And it, as it turned out, as it played out, Ellen confirmed that, uh, for instance, there was uh, some mental illness in another lifetime that was going on, and she confirmed that as a child, I mean, she was always afraid she was going to be locked up in a sanitarium that was nearby because of the way her mind processed so it's just a whole, yeah, it all fit together. And it's just, a, it was almost like a healing of the souls through time. <clears throat> yeah, for me, it's, that kind of thing is confirmation that she had always been afraid of being locked up. Yeah. Um, and that there was a past life where she was locked up in a sanitarium. Yeah, And they were pretty, right. they're pretty mean, pretty mean in those days. So, um in the sanitariums they were not kind so this brings um this brings up a totally different but related subject for me that i'm curious what you think about this because you've seen an awful lot of past lives and i'm wondering what happens when a a person has regressed to a past life in which they were um and, and have you ever seen this, where they were mentally ill in that past life, or they were a criminal? And maybe when you regress them, that person doesn't want you to know what really happened, or because they were like mentally ill or mentally retarded, when you regress them back to that, that lifetime, are you talking to that personality? Well, there's two ways of uh, doing a regression. One is revivified, in other words, so that it's just like a flashback. The person is actually going through the experience so that they're right up close and personal in the experience. And the other way is to have the knowledge of it, but like watching it like a movie, so that you disassociate from the emotional context of what's going on so that you can see this unfold. And one of the things I do before I do a regression is to check to see how a person images in their mind's eye. Some people uh, do not step away from it. They're very kinesthetic, and their, their impressions, their images come from being involved in it again. So when that happens, they can really experience the same impact over again. Or, you know, from, from the standpoint of going through that, I know that uh, I've had instances where uh, one person's mind brought them to a point where they came out and they were in the process of being burned at the stake. 
and they didn't particularly care for that, <laughs> and they just woke themselves out of trance. Uh, you know, um, where what I do ahead of time is set it up as best I can so that I can move a person from something that's traumatic. And yes, I have seen that with uh, someone that had a series of mental illnesses in the past uh, where the shame they felt from what they've experienced there, they could feel that shame in this life in a different way. So the goal would be to look at it from a distance so that they could resolve it. The other thing that I look to do as best I can in cleaning up the clutter, when when we wind up with something in a past life that's impacting them negatively in this life, is I want to go back before that situation began so that they can see how it evolved and also to build a bridge from where they are now back to before the trauma set in so that they can reconnect with a better image. It's almost like a healing that you bring over the sense, and then it comes into the point of saying, well, you know, my thoughts and my emotions and my feelings, and I think you spoke about that earlier, when, when you would get an impression and somebody would say, oh, yeah, that's what I've been thinking or feeling in this life, it's like how does what you experienced in that life, how does it experience impact in your life now so that they can kind of break that trance that they've been living in of the feelings, the emotions from the past so that they get a different perspective so they can say, wait a minute, even if the feeling comes up again, is I'm not there anymore. I'm in a different place so they can make that change to go forward. Now, in, in the book, the girl, the woman, Ellen, never had that dream again after we started working on it. Really? So, she, so she's never had that dream again. So it just, in a way, it was a resolution for her. And lots of times when people get things through their dreams, once they begin to go into it and see it and change it, and they aren't impacted with that old memory anymore, the old karma. Yeah, I found that to be true, and people hear about past lives as well. They understand what happened, and just like with psychotherapy, remembering a repressed trauma allows all kinds of things related to it to heal that you didn't even realize were related to it, even from childhood trauma in this lifetime. So... um, yeah, that that would make sense that she'd stop having the dreams. I had I knew somebody once who had a recurring dream, and um, yeah, and once this person spoke about it, it'd been going on for years and years and years. Once they spoke about it and said to me they tried all these different things, I finally said, well, you know, there's one thing you haven't tried, and it's what they do at the Sanoi, S-E-N-O-I, Indian tribe, which I think is in the Pacific somewhere is just turn to your, this is a, somebody was attacking him and killing him, just turn to your attacker, spread your arms wide, and say, I'm here to learn the lesson you came to teach me. And once he did that, he never had the dream again. So it's interesting the kinds of things we can do to uh, to heal ourselves. So who knows what really happened in that dream after he said that. I, I was never privy to, to what he learned. But, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, so have you go ahead i was going to say there's a technique in lucid dreaming where once you gain control of the dream that dream that you can actually change that dream so that you could go into a nightmare and resolve it 
and people that do that aren't, uh, you know, they don't have the experience of the nightmare afterwards. And you can do the same thing actually in a trance in your mind because uh, lucid trances would be about the same. It's changing the, the impression that you have in your unconscious mind, resolving it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're you're right. That would work. I, I've actually heard of people doing that, just re, reliving the dream while in a trance, absolutely. So have you ever hypnotized people, Michael, who been abducted by aliens? Yeah, I uh, get, I don't uh, get them all the time, but I have uh, worked with people in the past, yes, that have had those experiences. It's interesting that you describe those experiences as though they were dreaming. It felt like a dream. Well, lots of times, yeah, a lot of them are in their sleep. Uh, there was one particular person years ago, I remember, that uh, wasn't from this area, but uh, they had had situations their whole life where it was almost like something was coming. In fact, several people, it isn't the abduction was not necessarily the full physical body either. It was like coming and connecting with them in, in the nighttime and uh, a part of them would leave the room. I don't know whether the body left the room or not, but they, in other words, then they would go someplace, and when they came back, it would be set up so that they would come back to, uh, sometimes to a pleasant scene. There was one woman that came back. Well, she couldn't figure it out because uh, she woke up in the middle of the night. She was aware of a light or something, but anyway, she looked outside, and it was snowing, but it was like early autumn. She loved snow. She couldn't figure it out. So we huh. used the hypnosis to go back in, and she saw an abduction process taking place. And when she was placed back, she was given a memory or an image that was pleasant to her. Oh, it was a, a screen memory. Yeah, screen memory, so that she had this, so that when she woke up, I mean, it was the idea of the snow that, the, that she saw. But she was trying to figure out how come she was seeing snow in, uh, you know, in early fall. Yeah. So I want to go back to where you said um, the people feel like some part of them is taken out of the room, but their physical body might still be there. The interesting part about that is, and I've read several books about alien abductions, and, um, and, and that's what a lot of people describe. But they also say that when they get put back into their bodies, after the experience, if they've had a surgery on board the ship, there will still be uh, marks on their bodies from where the surgery happened. What do you hmm. think about that? So, is it real? Is it psychosomatic? Uh, what is it? I, you know, I don't have a total answer for it, but it's real to them. And yes, I have had and uh, talked to people that have had uh, situations where they'll wake up with a say, a spot of blood or something they could see there was a small incision made. And um, Yeah. So what if... You, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'll tell you a story when you finish up there, when we finish okay. this line of questioning. Okay. So what if there is a... And this just popped into my head, you know, which is a receiver anyway. <laughs> so... What if there is a um, 
some sort of technology in effect that we don't understand where they can take some part of us and leave the physical body and yet the two are so entwined that when they put it back it affects our physical body. So like nosebleeds. Yeah, it's like the ethereal body. In other words, the same the, yeah. the same physical and I suppose you could call it a hologram in some ways. It's like taking this and, and transporting it over here and so you yes, you have a remnant here, but there's a part of the, the person that's left the room that's over here. And at that point in time, they're connected to something beyond them. It's very, I mean, if, if all of this is real or, or not, I mean, this, it's obvious there is technology there that humans do not understand at this time. Uh, we're yeah, that's what... Area. Yeah, I was going to say, as a sidebar to this, uh, have you ever heard of Betty and Bonnie Hill? Yes. They were yes, I the most famous abduction case really in the country. Well, that took place, excuse me, <clears throat> about uh, about 40 or 50 miles from here. And Really? Uh, I, yes. And I knew I had an artist friend of mine uh, named David Baker. Now, the whole story of David is very interested in the first place. Uh, David had lost his son in the 60s, and Arthur Ford, who was a very famous psychic, came to his house to do a reading on his uh, son and told him things that only his son would know from the other side, and then he told him he'd be taught a new method of painting from the other side. Well, that new method of painting eventually turned into what's called vitreous flux, which is actually watercolor on malite. And in the meantime, David was a great jazz fan, and he met a couple, Betty and Bonnie Hill, at, um, at a jazz concert, and they became good friends. And this was while they were reliving or going through the process of remembering what happened to them in the abduction through work at Harvard with a psychiatrist that was using hypnosis to get the information. And so one day, Bonnie was describing to David what the process was like. And David started to sketch in his mind's eye what he was seeing. And David told me that when Betty came back in from shopping or being out with David's wife, she saw the sketches and just went out and walked around in circles. In other words, whatever David had drawn really meant something to her. And so she eventually acquired many of his uh, paintings and sketches on the on the aliens and uh, used them in her just as a little sidebar of, the, huh. of this area is fascinating. Yeah, we're in the largest UFO sighting area in New Hampshire in Carroll County. It's uh, and so there's been a history of it since I've been here back in the '60s of people seeing, uh, you know, um, things in the sky that they couldn't quite or didn't know what to describe. So I'm off on that side, Bob. But anyways, it is it's a well, fascinating I, I took subject. You there. Well, I took you there for the reason that that's a, a very important way that hypnotherapy is used. I think because otherwise, you just if you can't put somebody in a trance, how are you going to retrieve memories that have been either blocked by the abductors or by the people's own fears? Um, 
So I think, you know, that's a very important part of what you do in doing hypnotherapy. Um, and um, I think that a lot of people, the interest in that particular area is really growing. And the reason for that is that more and more people are seeing these kinds of things or remembering that they've been abducted. Yeah, uh, and I think yes, that's part I agree. Of the, I think that's part of the veil being lifted. Is it people like are seeing into... Go ahead. Yeah, I like what Dick Sutton says in his uh, research in, um, in past lives. He's found that about 15% of the people have knowledges of what you'd call being a star being. In other words, they have knowledge in their mind of what it was like to live outside of this, this, uh, the world on other parts of the cosmos. And that brings it back to an interesting thing because working with that, I've had people that really are convinced that they became hybrids back, uh, you know, many lifetimes ago and still carry those genes with them. Yeah, I... For one thing, I have realized that, or I've been told while talking to extra-dimensional beings, which I do from time to time, that all our past lives are, as well as the lives of our ancestors, are contained within our DNA. That stuff they call junk DNA, of course, isn't. And that there are connections like threads of light from our DNA to our ancestors' lives, in other words, all our forebears, our, our real ones, not the ones we think are our parents or grandparents, but the ones who really were, and um, also to our past lives. It's all connected to us through the DNA, which is in every cell of the body. <clears throat> so, yeah, we're connected to all our past lives. And also, I agree that uh, which means if we have relatives who are star beings or people from other planets, then that's in our DNA as well. Uh, but I've also seen lots of past lives of people who have had lifetimes on other planets or when I say star being, I mean someone who is so um, evolved in terms of the levels of spiritual evolution that they are made of light and live inside a star. That's what I would call a star being. I'm, I'm not sure everybody means that when they say star being. But, yeah, I've seen people who came to Earth this time to help with the process we're going through right now who have been light beings. Or, um, And I've had past lives that I know about where I lived in, as a different race on another planet. So I think there's no question that, that that's going on. And um, as part of what we're going to start to find out, I don't know if in my lifetime it will happen, but I, I think we're going to start to realize who we really are. Part of that's going to come through an analysis of DNA. Well, it seems to be uh, a great feeling that things this year, 2014, are going to really begin to... to uh, create that enlightenment a little bit. I mean, things now are, there's so many things being called into question of what we have been told or thought, whether it's uh, ancient history or, I mean, that, that's outside of where, you know, society has accepted it as real. And now um, the evidence is forcing uh, 
science and, and history to really take different looks at what the makeup of our system is, how it has been, how it's developed. Yeah, I think I think on many, many levels, the 2014 is going to be absolutely spectacular. And uh, there are those who have had out-of-body journeys and, you know, died and come back, uh, near-death experiences, who have been taught while they're outside their bodies in one way or another. And a lot of them report that 2014 is the first year that humanity begins to um, guide its own direction. In other words, we are manifesting reality all by ourselves without any help. And that that makes it a very critical year. And the people that I talk to about that get really excited because they, I'm hearing universally that everyone's really excited about this being an extraordinary year and really good things are going to happen. So uh, my hopes, my, um, what is it about this year in a really kind of over-the-top, excited way, from time to time I have to say, calm down now, calm down. Um, but I really think that a lot of the reason that we stood in line to incarnate in this lifetime is about to come to fruition, and I'm really thrilled about it. Um, so, And what you're, you're saying, I think, is what I've been feeling is that there's a group of souls here on the earth that are part of a transition team. And, yes, uh, are brought here at this particular time to help those that choose to find this enlightenment. There, you know, there are going to be people that souls that don't choose it, but help those that uh, choose to understand to open up to, you know, the the true knowledge of the universe. It's um, there, and that transition is a part of it. I call it the lost and tribe sometimes. Huh. That's a good name for it. Um, so I think that there were there were thousands and thousands of uh, souls who volunteered to come in, and, and transition team is a perfect name. Make sure that things go well. Yeah, to yeah, the well-being. Yeah. I know. I have one gifted friend, and I tell her she's uh, experiencing a. Uh, uh, a retrogression. In other words, she got kicked back, and and you pretty well phrased that in, in earlier on in the sense of uh, here's a person that has light knowledge, star knowledge, that all of a sudden is back in human form and yet has the access to, and you watch watch them reach out there and bring something, you know, back to their knowing. And reading the body in a different way is a medical intuitive or having a concept you know, just spanning uh, knowledge in a complete different way than, than we're used to. Yeah, I think a and lot you do of... That. Uh, and you do that. And, well, I do um, it in, in my own way, as we all do or can. Yeah, and, and there are quite a few people out there doing that. And the... Uh, there are people who uh, may be listening now or later in the archives who do that. And there may be people who are feeling like they're supposed to do that. They're going to take this moment to say, you're here for a reason. Don't be afraid to do what you came here to do. Um, because if you don't do it, then um, 
will be without your gift that that we need. So um, courage is sometimes necessary in order to step outside your comfort zone and begin doing the work that you know you came to do. But, um, but you know, nobody ever said courage was the absence of fear. That's fearlessness. Courage is feeling the fear and doing it anyway. And... Um, so my hat's off to everybody who feels that fear and does it anyway and comes out in a public way and says, you know, this is what I'm here to do and this is what's going on and this is what I'm here to contribute and, you know, here it is. And runs the risk of people uh, not understanding, making fun of them, whatever. I uh, that's a tribute. The, yeah, part of the process of, of doing the book the way I did it was with the idea of presenting something that, that people can believe or not. But if it opens up a seam, a sense of a question, then that's part of the purpose. I mean, it's, uh, it's there. Is, it, is this real? Isn't this real? In other words, and the goal is to have people think of their own experiences, maybe the unexplained experiences, might be just ghosts or it might be other things in their life, but presenting it to them in a way that they hopefully their mind engages in their own thoughts, their own views. And this is what really opens the door is when each person begins to realize rather than being told that they have it, it's discovering they have it. And when they discover it themselves, then, you know, then it's there. I mean, it's real rather than they've gone through the resistance of, because uh, a lot of people will say, well, this you, you do this or you do that, and they could put a wall up and not accept it. When they come face-to-face with it themselves, something they can't solve, now they have a choice. They can look for an explanation. They can look for that mystery. And that's exactly. Well, as part of the spiritual process unfolding is to begin to discover for yourself who you are and accept it and trust yourself. My my friend that the, the book was written about, after she saw the, the cover design, which has a, a little ghostly girl on the cover with a with a old house. And anyways, the picture of the house is actually the dream house that she had found afterwards that she knew where it was. And she drew the picture of the little spirit girl herself. But in sending me an email after she saw the cover of it, she's going, because she can't remember the whole story. Uh, she gets to a point, every time she's read it, afterwards read the manuscript, it gets blocked right out of her mind. At the point where the mother in the book is sent away, <laughs> driven crazy. And so it all gets confusing from there, and she's never remembered it. What happens is that she said she looked at it, and all of a sudden she had this feeling inside. There was something familiar about it. And so there's something in her soul that stirred that thing, the knowing. And that's the whole sense of each one of our souls has these memories, these these uh, pieces of information, pieces of a puzzle that are there, whether it's connected to a DNA or 
a past life experience or whatever it is, is if we allow them to come to the surface and then begin to piece them together like a puzzle, a mosaic, then perhaps a clearer picture of one's own destiny, of one's own past, of one's abilities will come together that will help guide them as they flow through this, uh, what I call uh, Project Earth here, through their soul's journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, you're in, you're trying. You're wonderful a, about. There's a little bit of a lag between when between the when I talk and when you talk, so it's hard it's hard to tell when one of us has stopped and the other one has started. So, um, yeah, I want to ask you a question about um, if you had to summarize what's the benefit of people knowing about their past lives. What would you say is the, are the benefits of that? Well, there's two benefits. One is uh, understand. Well, understanding is the big thing. In other words, I believe that, and I'll qualify this if any of this is true. I believe that we're influenced on a daily basis by the whole memory of our soul. So consequently, there are things every day that affect us positively or negatively. Now. Uh, the thing is that once you get a different view, the holographic thought of how you live your life, and you begin to look at where you were caught up in a trance during the day of an effect, a feeling, a thought of something that you couldn't understand, but it was really controlling you, if you get an idea of where it may have come from, then you yourself are regaining control of your own process. The other thing is that people have gifts and abilities that they have natural within themselves that many times there was a situation in the past where they may have um, had a situation that themselves to doubt what they have and it's created a fear. So if they can understand and go back and reconnect to a gift and update it to where they are now in this life, then whether it's intuition or whether it's uh, an art or creativity of some sort of writing, it's like allowing them to discover it again for the first time and update it to where they are now so they can go forward and use it. And, and again, I always look at everything we do, what's the benefit for the greater whole? In other words, if you do something, what's the cause and effect? Rather than the ego, how does it help mankind in general? Hmm. Very interesting. Um, so... I agree with all, everything you've said that in every moment of our lives we are affected by all of our other lifetimes because those are the memories of our soul and each of us is an expression of our soul on the planet. So I, I love the way you phrased it. I think that was very powerful. So what what's and, coming up next for you? Well, or, I'm... Uh, I'm uh, off with uh, uh, the adventure. When people ask me what I do, it's like I'm on call for the universe. So I just, whatever happens next. I have an idea of uh, one that's been floating around in my mind that I just began to sketch out, um, which is actually would be a fiction, but it involves a lot of the things that we're talking about and the concept of a dream and the connection of many different lifetimes. And 
two people that have gone through the process of uh, of uh, different lifetimes as enemies and how it plays out in real time in this life and the situation that's happening and perhaps how one goes back and studies the past to understand now how they can uh, solve the future. Anyways, that I'm playing with, plus I do a daily podcast, and so I'm, I, more and more time goes into that all the time. Uh, I've been doing some, um, uh, some interviews with uh, your friend from Texas on a, on a show that she does, and um, so um, yeah, they line up some guests there. So I've been able to talk to some really neat people that uh, you know, give me uh, different thoughts and uh, so I really, you know, I don't have an answer to everything. I just, uh, I just, uh, every day is a mystery. And if every day it, it comes out, I have concepts, and then the concepts, it's like access goals to get you the big goal. But I'm just a piece of a bigger thing. So it really isn't, doesn't center around me. It centers around how I fit in the whole. Well, I you know, a lot it's interesting you there. should... Yeah, it's interesting that, to hear you say that because that's kind of how my world is too. I and I describe it as I allow my um, my career or what my work in the world. I allow it to morph because I I believe that we are, in other words, it's changing on its own, and I'm just kind of following along, watching it happen, because I feel like we're all guided by an unseen hand. And um, we don't have to do five-year plans. Somebody else uh, who knows more than we do is already doing those plans. And if we just surrender to our guidance and be in the moment, we're always doing what we're supposed to be doing. And it sounds like you're saying the same thing. Yeah, I look at myself as a piece of the whole. And if I'm a piece of the whole, then I haven't got to lug the weight of the whole. Uh, You know, we're... (laughs) It's really awkward playing human, and so I come back <laughs> to the point of, you know, I'm, I'm in human form, and so I need to play the game but and, and fit within it. But in the process of it, there's all kinds of ways that help me navigate through this, this uh, remote outpost on Earth. So I just trust that. And, and it comes back to, so, you know, uh, what is perfection? In other words, people want to do things perfectly and people expect us to do things perfectly, you know, and that's the whole thing based upon kind of how well we do it or what it is. Now, perfection is really, it's really the intention. In other words, if each time we go about doing something, we do it to the best that we can do it, that's perfect. Now, it may be a dismal failure to somebody else, but if we've gone about it using that best of what we can do, then we will learn as we process, and we learn from things that don't go quite right. People try to keep recreating the same thing over and over again, and it's never the same. So if we always take and work towards improving things, towards learning more, in other words, if I can be a kid in my mind and every day see an adventure, see something that I'm going to learn that I'm going to be taught, then that becomes a, it becomes really a wonderful way in my mind to travel. And what happens is then 
I'll be taught things that I had no idea I was going to be taught. And then they will turn up as ways that I can use them in the process of communicating with somebody else. That, for me, it's like, as I say, I do this little podcast thing, but every day if I view nature, and in the morning I take that moment or two and reflect on something that I see in nature that relates to ourselves in our lives, and then I just send it out, and wherever it goes, it goes, and it's, you know, it's out of my mind because I was just that vessel for that moment for something to speak through me because I have no idea what I'm going to say when I say it, and it, off it goes, and, and then, you know, so that, but at the same time, I'm learning from it as I'm experiencing it. Sounds like you're channeling. Well, I think in a way, yeah. I, I, a lot of the writing I do, it's almost like on, well, it's living life on two levels. It's the hologram again. Because once I write it, I have no idea sometimes why I wrote what I wrote, play out, and uh, it will, you know, take place uh, the way it should go. So I just receive what I receive and out it goes, and then people can make judgments on it. Because, again, I don't really own the information that goes through me. Yeah, I I know what you're talking about. Some people do call that channeling, and, and but not everyone calls it that. And, yeah, but a vessel for the divine. Or I used to say, um, I'm not the... Um, I'm not the artist, I'm not the canvas, I'm the paintbrush. Mm-hmm. It just yes. comes through me. The greatest I'm not in work, control of it. An artist is an interesting uh, uh, whole study in themselves because a lot of them are based on ego. And the problem is that when the ego takes over, the art diminishes. It's almost like, oh, yeah. I use the word surrender. It's like uh, the, the up and down yo-yos. And, you know, a lot of artists have lives that aren't very pleasant because they're either way up or way down. Well, it's when they're way down that they allow themselves to give over to something going through them. Then they're in the creative trance that takes over. And they're in this way of going. They don't pay attention to anything else in life but just that one thing. And so they go, their world around them may be falling apart, but they're creating a beautiful piece. Once it's done, they're not quite sure how they did it. So, and they may or may not get recognized for it as much as they want to. So there's a great battle going on within inside of themselves rather than just allowing themselves to accept that whatever's coming through, that's there. And knowing and learning to trust that the next time, the next piece will come when it needs to come. Yeah, that was that's interesting. I because you know that's what my academic training was in when I was younger. Um, I was trained as a painter, got the, the MFA in painting, and I was mm-hmm. very aware that that I was channeling, but I didn't know the word. I'd never heard the word. Um, but I was. I said, when I do this, I don't know what's going to happen on the canvas or the paper. I connect to the collective unconscious because that was the only name I knew for it. I'd read Carl Jung's work, um, and it just sort of flows through me. And I knew that it would always do that as long as I wanted to, wanted it to. But I guess that's got to do with my past lives. I never expected. Um, I, I've 
it's funny. I knew because I was in Texas, I would never get the kind of recognition I would get if I went to New York or Los Angeles. But I also felt family was a whole lot more important. So I stayed here in Texas and mm-hmm. allowed my life to just unfold like it was supposed to. But, um, yeah, I think a whole lot of people channel art, and that's when it's coming. At, some people say when it's coming from your soul. And then there are the people who are... Uh, copying something from a photograph somebody else took or a picture they like in a magazine and that's because they um, they're not really as far as I'm concerned not really making art when they do that because art is supposed to be creative not imitative but their urge is creative they're just afraid to trust it and so they're imitating something they think is beautiful but um, yeah real art comes from that space but there's a there's a there's a thing that I use with people sometimes with what we call trance and art, and people say, well, I can't draw. I can't sketch. And I'll say, well, can you imagine? And they'll say, yeah, can you see this picture that you want to do in your mind's eye? And they'll say, yeah, okay, well, now imagine that that picture is on a piece of paper. Yeah, they can imagine. And so all you need to do is trace what's on the paper. In other words, you can use your, you can project it so that in their own mind they weren't creating it; they were copying it. But they were copying what was in their mind. They have they've gone to it's not a full full trance. It's like uh, it's like mediumship where you got the full medium that goes in and the the voice takes over. You know, the spirit takes over, and the other one where they're communicating with the spirit so that they're grounded, but they're there. So there's different levels. Or as one person mm-hmm. that uh, we examined uh, to her artwork and so forth, and I and I said, and we did a past life and found that she was a sculptor. So I asked her how she sculpted in that past life, and could she see it, and could she feel it, and yes, and how she could update it to her life now. Well, so what happened was that she began to see the shadows and saw the dimension of what she was doing as a sculptor in the past. She began to use those shading techniques in her sketches in this life, so it changed her technique. Oh, so her drawings had more volume. Right. It had it had a different, it was flat before. Now it's like you can look, and you look and you study at and you'll see people that will paint three-dimensionally. It was like a Van Gogh, who I believe saw the auras around, you know, the swirls, or a Monet who had eye stigmatism that, uh, or whatever he had that affected his painting, but he was doing what he saw. Mm-hmm. So she saw differently after she saw through the sculptor's eyes again. Yeah, and that's what makes unique art, is when people see things a little differently that translate to other people it means something or at least to me that's what I look for mm-hmm. I like well that. we're just almost we're almost out of time what would you like to say in closing I would say that uh, you have been a fascinating host and and I thank you so much for your changing the whole direction of the book and bringing a whole different concept to it Lois I really appreciate that well, thank you Thank you. And thank you for being on the show and for um, sharing your wisdom with us. And I hope we can talk again at another time. Would love it. Thanks again. Okay. Have a wonderful 2014. Yep. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. 
So tomorrow, next week, not tomorrow, next week, I'm going to start doing these shows on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Central, which is 11 Eastern and 9 Mountain and 8 Pacific. And next week's guest is Harriet Knight, and she's written a couple of really interesting books on um, chakras and gemstones and how they can be used together for healing. And the next week I'm going to be talking, on the 16th, I'll be talking with Niara Isley, who has written a book about her alien abductions while she was a uh, uh, in the military, let's put it that way, and in Area 51, assigned to Area 51. So uh, that's Thursday, January 16th. So uh, see you next week, and thanks for being here.